came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is the 15th of March 2018. Each fortnight, we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And today we are speaking with Kirsten Banks, who is an Indigenous astronomy educator at the Sydney Observatory. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. And then we'll have a quick news roundup. So first, we cross up to Sydney to speak with Kirsten. Hello, Kirsten. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Kirsten Banks, who is a fourth-year physics student at the University of New South Wales and Indigenous Astronomy Educator at the Sydney Observatory. She's a multiple award winner and CSIRO STEM Award finalist, and we're looking forward to seeing her name in lights when the winners are announced next month. But meanwhile, where did you grow up, Kirsten? And please, tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place, and did you have dark skies in your backyard? Well, I grew up on Sydney's northern beaches, and I do love this question very much because I love talking about it. I was always interested in the sky. I cannot remember a time where I wasn't interested in the sky. In primary school, I wanted to be a meteorologist. So I wanted to study storms, and storm chasing seemed really exciting to me. But once I went into high school and I saw the documentary about the Hubble Space Telescope, and this was at the... IMAX Theatre in Darling Harbour in Sydney and these huge, huge photos of space and the cosmos just flashing up on the massive big screen. I looked at it and I realised I want to do that. Fabulous. Now tell us a little bit about your school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? The ambitions changed a little bit. So Like I said, in primary school, I wanted to be a meteorologist and work at the Bureau of Meteorology. That looked like a really exciting day for me. But I also wanted to be, you know, the weather person on the news, pointing out, oh, where's the high-pressure system coming from here? Is it going to rain today? Is it going to rain tomorrow? That looked really fun to me. But when I got into high school, I just really enjoyed the challenges of physics and astrophysics. And from then on, I went on to study it as a career. Fantastic. Now, later in your school days, you discovered something intrinsic about yourself. 
please tell us about your Wiradjuri heritage and how you have developed your expert knowledge in Indigenous astronomy. After I finished high school, I started working at Sydney Observatory, where I work now as well. Yep. And one day I was walking through the hallway and I walked past this Indigenous map of Australia. And I realized I always knew that I had Indigenous blood in me because my dad would always tell me that that's our background. Yep. But I never really knew exactly where we came from. So I looked at this map and I thought, huh, I wonder which group I come from. So I went home, I did some research and found out that I am from Oradjuri. And ever since then, I was just absolutely hooked on learning more and more about Indigenous astronomy because we through their stories, through the Dreamtime stories and their star stories, intertwined are these complex phenomena about space and astronomy. It's just absolutely amazing how much knowledge they had back then. That is awesome. Now... For example, can you tell us about the emu, which is probably the best known but least understood feature of the Aboriginal Sky Atlas? And how do we go and find the emu in our night skies? The emu is one of the biggest constellations I can think of. When I say constellation in this case, usually in Western astronomy, you connect the dots or you connect the stars to create arbitrary pictures, but uh, in this case, we're using the dark parts of the Milky Way to manifest this huge picture of an emu. So if you look into towards the center of the Milky Way, you'll see the big bulge of the center is the body, and extending towards the Southern Cross, you have this long neck, and then finishing with a head right next to the Southern Cross, and that makes the celestial emu, which in my country is called Gagoman. And the less understood feature about this emu is that it's not just a picture in the sky it also gives us meaning on how to we and how we actually look for emu eggs so in my country when the emu is directly above us just after sunset this indicates that the emu are now nesting and we can go looking for emu eggs fantastic and there's more exciting news too the fifth brightest star in the Southern Cross has just been given an Aboriginal name. That's right. I'm so excited when I heard about this. Not only this star, the fifth star of the Southern Cross is called Ginan, which is the Waterman name for a small red dilly bag full of knowledge that's passed on, which I think is fantastic in that it's on our Australian flag and it's internationally known by this name. There's also three other stars that have been given Indigenous names as well. It's just a really great step in the right direction for getting recognition for these amazing knowledge of the sky. That is awesome. And for our listeners in Australia, the core of a Milky Way is just starting to come back over the horizon again. So now is an excellent time to go out and have a look and check out the EMU. Now let's go on. After some good basic science and physics at high school, You went on to do your physics degree at the University of New South Wales. Did you feel well prepared for university level physics after your HSC physics curriculum at high school? I think I had a good foundation, at least just by a little bit for HSC, from HSC physics to university physics. But when I was doing physics, it was more directed towards the history of physics because they recently changed the curriculum, I think it was this time last year, to include less history and more fundamental concepts. Because back when I did it, it was 
tailored more towards females, which is honestly terrible because I would much prefer the concepts and the fundamentals essay writing. Very good. But anyway, you can't win at everything. (laughs) Exactly. So tell us how you became a tour guide and astronomy educator at the Sydney Observatory. And what does that work entail for you? Oh my gosh, I love this story. So I started working at Sydney Observatory in my first year of undergrad. And the way I got my job, or this job became apparent to me, I was asked on a date to go to Sydney Observatory. Uh, And while on this date, I was talking to a guy, we're chatting about planets, because we were looking at Venus through the telescope during the day. And he was talking about how Venus goes through phases, just like the moon does, because it's closer to the sun than we are. And I mentioned, oh, Mercury must do the same thing, because it's even closer. And the tour guide said to me then, oh, you know what, you look like you know your stuff. You should apply for a job here. So I said, you know what, okay. (laughs) So I went and applied for a job. And while the date didn't go well in the end, I got a job out of it. So it was great. Fantastic. Excellent. Now, what are the main things that the general public and our scientific community should know about Indigenous astronomy? And how can we best preserve this? rich heritage that goes back 60,000 years and this huge depth of knowledge. How can we retain this knowledge we've got and find more examples? So I think the general public and scientific community should know more about how much we actually did know about the sky. So these days we use telescopes, we use special equipment to understand these fundamental concepts of astrophysics. But back 60,000 years ago, the Indigenous Australians didn't need any of that. They looked up at the sky and they could see patterns and they could work out that that planets are up there well before any modern astronomer worked that out. And it's just this sort of knowledge and this sort of recognition of that knowledge should be put out to the general public so they understand and appreciate what we have done for the last 60,000 years. Fantastic. And I hope we'll do a little bit by doing this interview, Kirsten. Now, as well as being an Indigenous astronomy leader, a a museum tour guide, often on night shift at the Sydney Observatory, a woodwind player and a netball umpy, you're also a research scientist with a particular interest in star formation and planetary geology. Why did these areas appeal to you? And could you tell us about your current focus in your studies and your research? Well, star formation and planetary geology seem very interesting to me because we see these stars in the night sky, but how do they actually come to be there? So I found that interesting to start off with when I started learning astrophysics. And planetary geology as well was quite interesting too because what if we were to go to somewhere else? How would we live there? Could we live there? And planetary geology is the first step into getting to that stage. My main focus for this year, this year I'm still studying just undergraduate studies. Yep. So I'm doing quantum physics and a couple of computational courses. Yep. And hopefully by next year, I will start my honours thesis and start working on bigger and better things, galaxies. That will be so fantastic. And after that, perhaps do a PhD? Potentially. PhD will be a little bit different for me because I want my focus to be on Aboriginal astronomy in my PhD. 
So that's where my planetary geology will come in. I'd like to study the planets and the role of the planets in Aboriginal astronomy. Now, you have also done a huge amount of astronomy outreach for events like National Science Week, for NADOC Week, and at many science festivals. Why is outreach so important to you and other scientists? Well, outreach is really important because without outreach, what are you going to do with your science? You first you research the science, and then does it just go into a filing system somewhere, or do you want to share it with people? Yep. I think the sharing of science is very important because then the best part about that for me is I get people excited about science. And once they get on that same sort of level of excitement as I do, it's yep. great because then I don't feel like the weird one in the room anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. Now, the mic is all yours now, Kirsten, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in education or inequity, in outreach, in our quest for knowledge or space. The microphone is all yours. Okay, well, I'm still very much on a high about the most recent Falcon Heavy launch because, oh my goodness, it's the most powerful rocket by a factor of two in the world now. It was the first test flight, and usually with test flights, these things blow up. That's just what happens. Yep. Rockets blow up when it's the first time being launched into space. But this one kept going and put a car in space. And then the two rockets on the side came down and landed together. Like, who does that? Yeah. Apparently Elon Musk with a billion dollars. And for listeners that didn't see it, there's some wonderful YouTube videos just showing that. So right now, we invite our listeners warmly to follow Astro Kirsten on Twitter or Facebook. And she also does a fabulous podcast with our mutual friend, Dr. Ankel Lopez-Sanchez. And I just listened to your last episode about the Falcon Heavy launch, and it was a blast, just sensational. You can find Kirsten's podcast by just doing a search for the Skyantists, S-K-Y-E-N-T-S. And it's out each fortnight on SoundCloud and iTunes. And it sounds like you and Uncle are having a lot of fun. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future, Kirsten? Uh, there sure is. The last, last weekend, no, the weekend before, I actually spent out in country on some rock formations with some rock carvings and filmed for a French documentary, which will be broadcast in France, America, Canada, Japan, and Germany, I think. Yep. So look out for that in August. It should be broadcast for your favorite Aboriginal astronomer. Fantastic. We'll make <laughs> sure to catch that. That's almost worth going over to France for. You're sure right. <laughs> I'm sure it'll end up on YouTube so that everyone can find it as well, Kirsten. Okay, well, thank you so much, Kirsten Banks, Indigenous astronomy educator extraordinaire. Thank you. I've had lots of fun. Okay, see you, Kirsten. Thanks, Brendan. Bye. So now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brandon. Great to be talking with you again, Ian. Have you had a big week? I've had a very big week. 
the major thing that happened this week was uh, getting the NHMRC grant in, which occupied large chunks of my waking time. But also on Friday, I did a small thing for the Fringe uh, called 15 at Chapel, where you had a number of speakers, 12 of us and all, speaking for 15 minutes, 15 seconds per slide uh, about a concept. And the concept we were given was blue. So we had people talking about their love of photographing swimming pools, underwater archaeology, the colours used in the Eureka flag. And I talked about blue from a pharmacological perspective. I talked about all the drugs that are blue-coloured that are used to treat various diseases. My key drug was methylene blue, which is uh, used to treat malaria. And it has uh, very good effects uh, on uh, killing malaria, but unfortunately turns your urine blue. So there is some drawbacks to this drug. Very good, and I love it when speakers have really strict speaking guidelines and you can get a number of speakers doing their presentations without going overtime. Exactly. Now, Ian, the crickets are very loud in the background. Is there any way of sort of shushing them up a bit? No, unless you uh, want to come over and help me crawl all over the ceiling <laughs> underneath the furniture to get them. They're everywhere, inhabiting the bathroom, they're inhabiting the living room, they're inhabiting our bedroom now, driving us up the wall. <laughs> well, well, we better say a big hello to all the crickets then. Hello to the crickets. Shut up, crickets. Very good, Ian. So, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? There's some very interesting things up in the sky this week. For those of you who've been listening and going out over the past week, We'll have noticed Venus slowly arising out from the horizon murk. It's now readily visible 15 minutes after sunset, just visible 15 minutes after sunset, and is quite visible 30 minutes after sunset. For those of us in the southern hemisphere, Mercury is close to Venus, but you can only see it with binoculars because it's too low in, in the twilight murk. For those of you in the northern hemisphere, you should be able to see Mercury reasonably readily without binoculars because Mercury and Venus are much higher for you from your point of view. Now, if you've been watching the morning sky, you'll have seen the moon pass down the ladder of planets. It's now going to be new on the 16th, 17th from Australian point of view, and then it will climb into the evening sky. And on the 19th, the moon, Venus, and Mercury form a triangle in the evening sky. Now, in Australia, in the Southern Hemisphere, Mercury is going to be very, very difficult to see without binoculars. It'll be low on the horizon. But the pairing of Venus and the crescent moon will look particularly beautiful in the twilight skies. In the Northern Hemisphere, you should be able to see all three of them. Mercury might be a bit more difficult now, but you should be able to see all three of them without too much trouble. That's the morning skies for the moment. Then the moon waxes and heads uh, up into uh, the higher heavens. And for those of you in the northern hemisphere, in uh, North America and some parts of Western Europe, you'll see the crescent moon go in front of the bright star, Aldebaran, star that forms the eye of Taurus the bull. It will occur in the early evening. And it's actually very easy to see. Aldebaran is very bright, so it's very obvious. And the first thing you will see is Aldebaran going behind the dark limb of the moon where the blinks out. 
and that should be easy to see with both the unaided eye because aloe is so bright and the moon will be waxing, it won't be very, very bright. So observing this with binoculars, again, it will be very easy to see and same goes with the telescope. In some areas, the, the Aldebaran will seem to skim along the edge of the moon, and you might be able to see it blink in and out as it goes across. But you'll have to check uh, local predictions to see exactly where Aldebaran is going in order to get good predictions for what you'll see from your site. And then later on in the evening, you'll see Aldebaran pop out from behind the bright side of the moon. This will be a bit harder to see because the crest it will be reasonably bright. But if you've got a pair of binoculars or a telescope, trained on the uh, uh, edge of the moon, and it should be fairly easy to see Aldebaran when it pops out from behind the moon. So that's going to be a very beautiful thing to see. On the 28th, you'll be able to see the moon cover the bright star Regulus. So again, uh, Regulus is quite bright, uh, and you should be able to see that reasonably well. Very good. And the constellation Orion is looking magnificent straight overhead at the moment. It is. It's quite nice to look at. Uh, for those of us familiar with Jupiter, Jupiter is now rising before midnight. In fact, it uh, can be easily seen by around about 11 o'clock. It's still a bit too low to be a really good telescopic object, although you'll be able to see the dance of Jupiter's moons in the in binoculars. So if you really want to do astrophotography with Jupiter, the best time is around about 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, those of you who are uh, more than happy to stay up early in the morning, you'll probably be noticing Mars edging closer and closer to Saturn. Uh, and as the uh, next two weeks go on, Mars comes much closer to Saturn. And it should be, for the, if you've got a, a, a wide field uh, a camera, the view of Mars heading towards Saturn will look very beautiful in the mornings. Or something else that is happening, if you uh, now that the moon's uh, gone from the morning sky, you'll notice that the clusters around uh, Sagittarius are now quite visible to the unaided eye. And this, of course, you living in the middle of a city, in which case you can't see anything. But those of you who are living in the outer suburbs or in the countryside will be able to see the clusters in um, Sagittarius quite easily. And amongst these is the iconic group of constellations the uh, clusters, the Trippid Nebula and the Lagoon Nebula. This forms a, you can see even in uh, a quite bright suburban skies, what looks to be a B-shape of stars, and in darker skies you can see the nebula around them. And Mars is heading directly towards this, and from uh, about the uh, 16th or so, Mars is going to be within binocular distance of the Trippid and Lagoon Nebulas, if you focus on Mars, you'll be able to see the Trippid and the Lagoon Nebulas quite clearly. And over the next few days, you'll see the uh, Mars come closer and closer to the pair. And between the 19th and the 20th, Mars will pass between them. Probably the best time is the, uh, is the uh, 20th, our local time. Uh, and that corresponds to the 19th in Universal time. If you're doing astrophotography, you have to be very uh, juggling a fair bit in order to make sure that Mars is overexposed while you're bringing out the uh, Trippid and Lagoon Nebula. But if you've got a wide field camera, uh, bright Mars in amongst the nebula will uh, look really nice. And of course, Saturn is still next to or very close to uh, M22, 
the uh, uh, the gorgeous uh, globular cluster. If you're under a dark sky sites, you'll see Saturn uh, readily observable because it's this goldy yellow colour uh, close to a fuzzy dot. In binoculars, you can easily see it looking like a blob of cotton wool. Again, you need a uh, fairly wide field telescope eyepiece to uh, see them together because they're too relatively too far apart to fit into a narrow field eyepiece. It's worth having a look. It looks really nice. Excellent. Ian, do you have a tangent for us this week? Yes. Well, my tangent follows on from what we were talking about uh, last week, where we talked about um, satellites and watching uh, humanity star and trying to catch that as it went past. Uh, now, the International Space Station is, an, is one of our favourite targets. It's beautiful and bright, and sometimes it passes not only very close to bright objects such as planets and sometimes goes in front of the moon uh, and the sun, which makes for very exciting astrophotography, uh, let alone interesting uh, visual effects. Although I remind people if it's going in front of the sun, don't look at the sun. It's great for going in front of the moon. Uh, but you may or may not have forgotten that there's another couple of space stations up there. Yep. And uh, the Chinese have launched two space stations, One's uh, Tiangong-1 and the other's Tiangong-2. Tiangong-1 was their first space station, which was basically uh, there to sort out their technology for linking onto things, building up modules. But sometime about 2016, they lost control of it and it's been slowly deorbiting ever since. Now... I don't know if any listeners there are old enough to remember either Space Lab or Mir. Space Lab was one of the first US space station using an old fuel uh, tank and it uh, burnt up and famously chunks of it landed in Western Australia. Mir was the uh, Russian space station which uh, burnt up over the ocean and we didn't get any spectacular pictures of this. But what we're looking for with Tiangong 1 is that we're on the lookout for uh, this as it burns up. Now, the problem is, of course, uh, we don't know exactly when it's going to burn up because it's not been able to be controlled. They have, they're not doing a controlled descent. And so originally it was going to, they put it in sometime, uh, maybe early March. Now it's been pushed back to late March and early April. So... Where will it be to the Earth's atmosphere? We don't know. Watch this space. All we know is that it's potentially going to cross anywhere between 42 degrees north and 42 degrees south, and it's most likely to land over the big ocean. But we're getting a better and better idea of where it will re-enter, and so satellite watchers will be on the lookout for it as soon as we have some good idea of when and where it's going to burn up, you can be sure that we'll be putting out messages and getting ready to preserve. It will be widely advertised on social yep. media once people know where when it's going down. The difference between when Mia came down and now, we were, we were doing blog posts then and trying to communicate through blogs and emails, and now you have Facebook and Twitter and all these other social media groups whereby you'll get the information out very, very rapidly. At 10 o'clock last night, we saw a very bright 
green flash descending from the sky. It flared out a couple of times in its descent over quite a few degrees as it came down very quickly. And we didn't know if it was a meteor or part of some spacecraft returning to Earth, but it was certainly a, a very spectacular sight, and we wished and we wished that we had a dash cam at the time. Oh yes, that's the about the only reason I would get a dash cam is to drive around at night, hoping I could catch a meteor. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that'd, that'd be fantastic because this is another thing about we're now seeing a lot more fireballs and bright fireballs because people have access to dash cams that are on all the time when you're driving at night. And so things you would normally miss and would not be reported are now being picked up. Thank goodness people were paranoid about uh, traffic accidents because now we're get, getting all this more information about uh, meteors, which can, in fact, lead, especially for the very big ones, can lead to recovery of freshly fallen uh, meteorites, which greatly enhances our ability to understand uh, both the, the, the meteorites themselves, the asteroids they came from, and potentially uh, lead into our information about the origin of the solar system. So it's all, all really uh, interesting. All good, Ian. There's so much we don't know, and that's why science keeps on going. That is indeed, 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 indeed. Well, we really are in the golden age of astrophysics. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's a pleasure to be on, and I hope uh, people are, are able to get out and see some of these wonderful events, especially those of you in uh, North America and Western Europe for the occultation of Aldebaran. That's going to be very good if you're lucky enough to have a clear skies. So get out and have a look. And if any listeners want to alert us to any phenomena in the sky or hear anything specific from Dr. Ian Musgrave, just drop us a line. You can find Astrophys on Twitter and Facebook very easily. Indeed. Well, let's hoping we get hope we get some interesting questions. Thanks a lot, Ian. See ya. And now for our news roundup. First of all, we'd like to express our sadness and express our sympathies to the friends and family of Professor Stephen Hawking, who passed away yesterday after a lifetime of incredible contributions to theoretical physics and astrophysics, whose humour was fantastic and who inspired whole generations to follow in his footsteps and explore this amazing universe. Our next item is from the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, as told by SBS. West Australian astronomers have uncovered proof that galaxies, no matter how big or small, all rotate at the same rate of once every one billion years. Astronomers have been left scratching their heads at revelations all galaxies, no matter their size, rotate once every billion years. On Earth, the length of a day is measured against one rotation of the planet on its axis, while the time it takes to orbit the Sun gives us a year. Lead researcher Gerhard Muehrer said the discovery was kind of weird. 
I just thought that kind of odd, he said. Small galaxies and big galaxies, all orbiting at the same time. Professor Muir is from the International Centre of Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, based at Curtin University in Western Australia. They also found evidence of older stars existing at the edge of galaxies, where only newly formed stars and gas were expected to appear. Older theories from the 1960s and 70s had whole galaxies forming very fast at the earliest part of the universe. That would give you the conditions for a lot of results we've seen, Professor Muir said. But the old theories, they have been replaced by theories that galaxies form over a longer time, gradually expanding outwards and with older stars closer to the centre of the disk. He said the discovery would help astronomers understand where galaxies end and no longer waste time and computer processing power on data beyond the edges. So even if your mega-galaxy IC1101, about a billion light-years away and about two million light-years across and with a hundred trillion stars in it, or if you're one of our smallest galaxies, dwarf galaxy M60 UCD1, with only 140 million stars and only 300 light-years across, you're going to take the same amount of time to do a single rotation. Now get your head around that. And finally, a bit of news that links our last episode with our next episode. This is from phys.org. Brightest fast radio burst yet recorded at Parks in Australia. A team of researchers at the Parks Observatory in New South Wales, Australia, has reported recording the brightest fast radio burst, FRB, yet on March the 9th of this year. They describe it as having a high signal-to-noise ratio and an orientation not very favourable for a detection of any gamma-ray transient with all-sky detectors. A reminder that FRBs are millisecond bursts of radio waves that originate from unknown parts of space. The first known recorded event occurred in 2001, but since that time, 32 more have been recorded. This record-breaking FRB came during a brief period in which three were recorded, all by the team at Parks. An earlier one occurred on March 1st, a later one on March 11th, and, and the team describes recording three FRBs in one month as quite unusual, because they are normally very difficult to record due to their unpredictability. No one knows when or in which part of the sky one will occur. But that might change, as experts have suggested, that FRBs likely occur every day, but are unnoticed because we do not have a telescope pointing at the target. Most in the field expect many more sightings in the coming year. It's just a matter of being patient enough to wait for the next event from the same source. And in our next episode, we're going to be talking with someone who is aiming to localise or find out exactly where fast radio bursts are coming from. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave!